looking off and on over the last couple of months at something about our church history and we've moved forward a little bit at a time and then we've sort of gone back a wee bit and then moved forward another wee bit. Tonight we're roughly speaking in the period around about 1050 to 1250, that sort of uh, AD, that time frame. Four weeks ago when we last looked at this we finished with the the, the great schism in the church, the great divide between East and West and tonight I want to, to sort of look under four general themes that we've again we've been carrying through uh, week by week. I want to talk a little bit about the history, the general history that, that's happened, it's the important thing. And then I want to really focus in on what we've termed tonight light in the dark ages. And I want to look at some men, uh, but not just the men because they were only those who the, the titular heads of, of they're the ones that stood up, they're the ones whose name we have recorded. But all of those that they um, followed them and all of those that listened to their teaching were faithful to the teaching of God's word during what was a very dark period, both in the church life and in really in Europe in general and, and in the East in general because uh, it was a time of great on lack of education, a, a time of great upheaval and so on. So I want to look at the faithful men and women of that time. And then we want to, we've been also thinking off and on as we've gone through the series about what way church was structured. So tonight I want to take us through a little bit of the structure that existed in AD 350 onwards, uh, 390 particularly. And we'll be looking at that and moving something forward and looking a little bit about the Eastern Orthodox Church and relate to that. And then I want to think also finally about our missionary endeavour and how we've, begin, we've looked at the spread of the gospel and we want to see how that continues. So that's, that's sort of the, the general outline. And so what I want to do just is to recap a little bit then and, and to move forward uh, about where we were when we left off about four weeks ago. And we've seen in 1054 that the, uh, a papal uh, delegation, they excommunicated the leader of the church in Constantinople. They went and visited the Patriarch of Constantinople and they excommunicated him. The, con- the Patriarch in Constantinople in turn excommunicated the bishop in Rome. And so the church fell apart. And it's called the Great Schism. It was in 1054. But in reality there was still a lot going on between the churches. And I suppose there was always that hope that there would one day be reconciliation. Well, let's think a little bit. I want to just dwell a wee bit in his history here for a moment and, and take it a little bit further. And we'll see how that, that didn't really take place. First of all, different popes came and went. And some of them better than others. As we said the last time, a lot of them, uh, well, they left a lot to be desired. And uh, in 1080, Gregory the Seventh was elected the Pope, and what he did was basically he decided that he was going to set himself up as the man, and he he basically said that he is above all kings, and where there was a bishop in a particular area, and it was perhaps that bishop tended to be supported by a, a local lord or a king or whatever it might be, he excommunicated them for working together. Because they were not under his direct authority. He seen them as uh, really uh, affecting his power and authority. So he was really, he set things up and began to raise the authority of this idea of the, the church 
following the Bishop of Rome and apostolic succession and all the rest of it. But then there was a problem. You see, what had happened was that, it, that we were now just past the end of the first millennia since the time of Christ. And of course people open their Bibles at the book of Revelation. They read about things about this millennial reign and so on. And so a couple of things people thought was going to happen. First of all they thought that Jesus was going to come back. So a lot of them sold land and property and gave it all up and waited for Jesus' return. And he didn't. But then also a lot thought that at the end of that period that what was going to happen is that Satan was going to be released for this thousand years before he would be bound again. And of course that didn't seem to happen either. So a lot of people got really thankful. And what they decided to do was they decided to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And so they began and lots of people around this time began to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem by this stage, remember, was under the control of the Muslims. It was under control of the Mohammedans. And the pilgrims went, but they went and they had really no issue. But then some of the Turkish powers, there was a power, the Turks took over that area. They conquered the area from other Mohammedans. So they were sort of Muslims fighting Muslims. You know, things haven't changed really in a thousand years. It's still... You know, different divides across face all up and down our world. And so here the Turks took over Jerusalem. And they did not like Christians one bit. They were very anti-Christian. So while the, the other the Mohammedans had accepted the Christian pilgrimages, after all, Christian money is as good as Arab money. They didn't mind if people were coming to Jerusalem. The Turks didn't. And so they made things very difficult. And Peter the Hermit had a, a very particular, he wanted to do the pilgrimage, he did it, but he had a really bad experience. And when he came back, he said and started to stir things up and said, we need to get Jerusalem back. And we need to get it back to the Christians. Our Christian heritage is centred on Palestine and we need to uh, be able to have that place restored again to us. And of course he stirred up things in such a way, he raised a a lot of men and he basically set out on a, on a crusade and the men they basically well all those who gathered together in arms and there were at least 300,000 of them they just said well God will provide for us and so they moved across the Balkans across northern Greece across Macedonia and they had no provision made for anything and they, and they destroyed the land basically so the king at the time of, uh, that was uh, in that area, he decided the best thing to do is get them into, get them into uh, crossing the Asia Minor as quickly as possible. Got boats, got the army across in, and they marched off to fight the Turks. And they were roundly defeated, thoroughly defeated, and disastrous, and nearly all they lost their lives. Peter the Hermit escaped and went back to Constantinople, and back to Rome, and managed to persuade Pope Urban II to really instigate a proper crusade and so the crusade started and Jerusalem was recaptured in 1099 so that, that's sort of a little bit of the, the background to the crusades, I'm not going to go into them because you could spend all night talking about the crusades and all the rest of it but I'll mention a couple of things very quickly first of all the second crusade uh, wasn't very successful either there were a lot of knights but they, weren't, they didn't make much of a dent and basically because they tended to fall out from one another. The third crusade, we, we recognise it as being famous because it involved Richard the Lionheart and so all the, the things that grew up with him and Philip of France and they, they went by boat rather than overland and they went in there as well. 
But they, at times, the Crusaders managed to capture and hold bits of Jerusalem, or Jerusalem and bits of the area around about it. And that was it. They were always under attack. But they also set up their own little kingdoms. But things were okay. But then came the Fourth Crusade. Jerusalem had once again been recaptured, and so they decided, we need to really get this. But the Fourth Crusade was a disaster. You see the reason I'm mentioning this now? The Crusaders got to Asia Minor, and they got to Constantinople. And they didn't go and attack the Turks. They didn't go and try and take Jerusalem. What they did was, they decided that they would take the riches that were there in Constantinople. This was, after all, this was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. This was the capital of the Eastern Church, and there was great riches. And they besieged the city, they sacked the city, and for over a week they raped and they pillaged and they burnt and they destroyed. And they really, totally, nearly wiped out everything of value from the Eastern Church had in that city. If there was ever any chance of reconciliation between Rome and the Eastern Church, that was put to rest. That was the final nail in the coffin. The Pope apologised for what the Crusaders had done, but that didn't matter. It was a disaster. A total disaster. So, the schism deepened. Yes, later there are attempts for the two churches to get back together again, but that was the nail in the coffin in those days. So Europe was a bit in turmoil. By the way, 1.6 million knights and men were killed in the Crusades. And that was just the major ones. There was others as well. We're going to talk about one more crusade later on briefly. Because it wasn't even towards Jerusalem. But also, so here's the, the, the place in Europe's in turmoil. The church is falling into corruption in many parts, especially in the Roman church. Practices have crept in which are really an error. How on earth was Christian faith in its simplest form to survive? And I think to to look at that I want to move on then to think about how the, the light was kept alive in the dark ages. And we need to go back a few years. We need to go back to uh, look around about AD 7. We'll start with AD 790. And I want to mention here a few men who managed to preach faithfully to God's word. Some of them preached from within the Roman church. Well, it was the church. It wasn't the Roman church then. It was just the church. Uh, And some of them were put out and preached outside the church, as we'll see. First one I want to mention is a man called Paulinus. Paulinus was uh, really, he was wanted to speak out about the things that he saw that were wrong. And one of the things he realised that the Second Nicene Council had accepted the worship of images. And he wanted to speak out and he spoke out against that. Saying that images were wrong, we should not be worshipping them. As well as that, he spoke out against a lot of error in the church. He also spoke out against what's called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation is to do with the breaking of the bread. It's where the uh, church, uh, the error was creeping into the church in those days, which said that the bread was the actual body of Christ, and the wine was the actual blood of Christ in the sacrifice that, that we call Holy Communion, or the breaking of bread, or Lord's Supper. So he preached against this, and 
This was something that was just creeping into the church about the 800s. It was 400 years later before it became an accepted uh, doctrine of the church and practice of the church. But he he preached that and he also denied the idea of apostolic succession from Peter all the way down to the present Pope. He said Christ alone is the head of the church. A few years later, Claude, a bishop of Turin, was similar. He preached against the worship of images and relics. He said a couple of lovely things. He says, you know, God commands us to bear our cross, not to worship it. And he also said, look, why don't we just go and worship an ass? After all, Jesus rode on an ass. You know, you can see how he was really making fun and poking at what was happening in the church. But again, Christ alone is the head of the church. And then a man called Berengar and Tour in France spoke out particularly against transubstantiation and the doctors and the errors in the church. Now these men all attracted groups of followers who were faithful to God's word. And as we're going to see as this develops, you're going to see that these were in a, a, generally a fairly tight geographical area. And so the people that listened and accepted the faithfulness and the preaching of these men, and they lived close together. The next one I want to mention is a guy called Peter Debris, who spoke in Provence. Now, Peter Debris has been described as the first Baptist. He preached in the early 12th century a very simple biblical message. And because of that, he won many, many people, many converts. And they... uh, quickly attracted the church of Rome and they were labelled as heretics. One of the things that they they were with the ordinance of baptism was only to be administered to adults. That was one thing. Also that it was idle superstition to build and dedicate churches to God because God cannot be worshipped in temples because worship is from the heart. Crucifixes and all that, those things, they were objects of superstition ought to be destroyed and the Lord's Supper again was not the real body and the blood of Christ and lastly that all those prayers and all those things and the good works of the living they in no way can benefit the dead so you can begin to see here how uh, that sort of teaching and preaching was really going to uh, pick up uh, the notice of of the church particularly the church in Rome the followers were called Preterobrusians and Peter Debris himself was killed. One day he was burning crosses and uh, getting rid of images. And this enraged a group of the local Catholic population and they literally threw him into the bonfire as well. But that didn't stop his teaching. But because of the persecution, a number of the sect or the number of the, the Christians fled into different areas. And some of them came even as far as England. Here's an account in 1157 in Oxford. A group of 30 were arrested. They stated they were Christians. That they believed in the doctrine of the apostles. And when we inquired more particularly into them, it was found that they denied several of the received doctrines of the church, such as purgatory or prayers for the dead, the invocation of saints, And they refused to abandon these damnable heresies, so they were called and they were condemned as incorrigible heretics and delivered to the secular arm to be punished. The church wouldn't punish. They got the state to punish. 
So the king, who was Henry II at the time of the instigation of the clergy, commanded that they be branded with a red-hot iron on their forehead, to be whipped through the streets of Oxford, and having their clothes cut short at their girdles, to be uh, turned out into the open fields, and everyone was forbidden to help them or to give them any food or shelter under the strict uh, penalty of death they helped them and it was in the middle of winter and all 30 died Arnold uh, of Bresica he was another man who spoke out against the Church of Rome and for he was named as this year earlier February 7th this year he was the title uh, in the Christian Herald or the Catholic Herald was Heretic of the Week Arnold of Bresica, so still seen as a heretic today, preached the need for piety in the church and that the church shouldn't be holders of land and property. And he was called to Rome, he summoned to Rome to explain his preaching. And as he went to Rome, what happened was there was actually a rebellion going on in Rome against the church and Arnold sort of became the de facto leader of the rebellion and the Pope was thrown out of Rome and Arnold became the leader of the people in Rome for about 10 years until the Pope raised an army, came back in, got him, tried him, hanged him, burnt him. Just because he preached against the things that were going wrong in the church. And the last man I want to mention is a man called Peter Valdo. Peter Valdo was a, a rich man in Leon, a rich merchant in Leon, and during the death of a, a close friend, he was affected by the ser- uh, sermon, and basically he um, gave up his money, and encouraged others to give up their money as well, and to live a life of poverty following Christ. They were called then the Humiliati, or the poor men, and of Leon, and then of later of Lombardy, and Austria as well, as they spread out. And uh, they ended up, he, as he spoke, he got a many people who uh, turned to Christ and they lived in the area in southern France and northern Lombardy in the Alps, in the valleys. Um, some of you here have been with um, us to down to Bourgneuf, where Richard was. That's the sort of area just there in the south. And uh, I remember when Jerry and I went to visit them ourselves a couple of times, uh, there was one occasion where they took us directly south from the Church of Bergneuf, down into the mountains, on the road to Turin. And, like, it's, wow, you know, it's sheer valley sides and ledges and big drops and all the rest of it. And that's where these people ended up living, and um, particularly after a time of persecution. It was said of them, their heresy is this, that they say the church is only among themselves, because they alone follow the ways of Christ and imitate the apostles. They don't seek secular gain, possess no property, follow the pattern of Christ who is himself poor and not permitted his disciples to possess anything. So these people, because of that, were severely persecuted. Now I need to mention very briefly here that there was in the same area a large number of heretical sect called the Albigenses. The Albigenses followed a heresy that had been around for around about this stage, about 800 years. From the east it was a mystical, it was called Manchism, 
Uh, I mentioned it before and what it was is they, they worshipped sort of like there's two gods there's a god of good, the god of evil all matter, everything that we have is evil the god of the Old Testament is evil the god of the New Testament is good so you can see it's a very confused thing and it's quite mystical in, in its, uh, its beliefs they weren't allowed to marry they weren't allowed to own property and they had a vegan diet um, so 800 years ago yeah and they believed, as I say, all things were, were evil. Now the point is that, yes, they were heretical against the church. They were also not Christian in their beliefs. That doesn't excuse what happened to them. What happened was that the Pope at the time and the church at the time, in 1232, decided that something had to be do about the Waldenses and the Albigenses. And so the Pope called for a crusade against them. But what he then did was he got uh, the Dominican friars to actually lead this crusade. And it became what was known as the, the start of the Inquisition. The Inquisition is sort of three parts. There's this part, there's then what we call the Inquisition against witches. And then the Spanish Inquisition. We'll maybe look at that later. But this was the start of the Inquisition. And this group, the Albigenses, were wiped out. Basically all their fortified towns, they didn't fight really, they did fight a bit, but they, they didn't believe in fighting. So they were totally wiped. The Wallenses, the true Christians, they basically scattered and they went up into this very mountainous region in the south of France, north of Italy. Some of them into southern Germany in the Alps, some in the Austria in the Alps. And you can see that. So the next picture actually, that shows you something. But that shows you the area that we're talking about. You can see, if you know your geography, that's all the Alpine region. Uh, that brown area there. So here is something uh, about these people. These were people, men and women, men who preached God's word faithfully, who preached against the church and the errors in the church, who stuck faithfully to the uh, Bible as it taught and not only that the Walhenses uh, what they also did as well was they had the Bible translated into local dialects and into French so that people could read and understand the Bible itself these people kept alive and alight the glorious gospel message and in a very small area the truth and their stand for the truth stood firm over hundreds of years four or five hundred years and as I said the, the church of the Wallensian still exists today and it is found in Uruguay, Argentina America, southern Germany, northern Italy and that. not a big membership but it's still there and it still exists today so that's something about people who were faithful to God's word. Something about what was happening with the split between East and West. But, you know, of interest to have been to us as well as being... Well, what was the church service like in the early uh, part? And we looked at that particularly in the first couple of, of our talks. And we looked and we thought about the, the way the church began to get... The service began to get more structured. And, you know, I, I have here an order of service... And this is the order of service that I'm sort of following tonight. This is what we're doing. And the one this morning, Brian, had a similar one. And I suppose we come to church and by and large we follow the similar format week after week. 
Let's, I want to go back about 1500 years and I want to look a little bit at the Eastern Orthodox Church. This, I want to think about something that happened here in shortly after the church became accepted under Constantine. The reason I've called it and titled it Eastern Orthodox Liturgy is because the order of service, the liturgy that the church had in 350 is still in existence today in the Orthodox churches. It's still the same. So 1600 years later they're still following the same order of service. They still say many of the same prayers. They still sing the same hymns as they did 1600 years ago. And there's a richness in them that we miss sometimes. We're, I know because of where we are we sort of say oh, these are high church. and But there is a richness and there's some truths found in it. Not in all the things that happen. Not in the practices. I'm not saying that. But there is a richness to it. And in 390, John Chrysostom, he made out a particular liturgy, a particular order of service. And we're going to look at that. Go back to the slide just once for a minute, Paul. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But I want to just mention some of the things that we think and we see about it. And we think this is a little bit different. For example... We see the use of incense, we see the, the human voice and we don't see music. But you can see there that there's something a little bit different uh, and when we try and get a picture we see these um, priests dressed up in wonderful robe garments and all the rest of it, swinging an incense thing around. Incense is meant to represent and represents the prayer of the saints. Malachi 1.11 which is talking about the future kingdom of God it says from the rising of the sun to the setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations so the church the orthodox church look at that and they also look at Revelation 8.3 and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So they believe in the use of incense and that the Bible teaches it. Uh, what about the veneration of icons? Well, icons are seen as visual reminders of uh, God, of visual reminders of the Lord Jesus, as um, something that reminds us of the dignity of our Christian heritage and of those who were uh, involved in our Christian past as well, and the dedication of many who suffered and died. They say they venerate idols. Veneration is not the same as worship. Worship is only to God. This is to hold in awe, to hold with a high regard, to hold with respect, to hold with reverence, but it's not the same as worship. They also um, they use the human voice and chant and song. They don't use music in the church. Uh, well, they do in some nowadays, but by and large, down through the hundreds of years, they don't use music in the church. John Chrysostom himself said, David formerly sang songs, also today we sing hymns. He had a lyre with lifeless strings. The church has a lyre with living strings. Our tongues, our tongues are the strings of the lyre, with a different tone indeed, but much more in accordance with piety. 
I listened to Rachmaninoff's Opus 31, a little bit of it, and it is the basically a choir singing through the liturgy, and it is wonderful to hear. You can't understand a word of it because it's in Russian, but that's beside the point. But it is the wonderful intonation of the human voice just singing a cappello. And, and of course we had a, a, a choir winning this afternoon the Tring Park sang a cappella when they won Young Musician, Young Choir of the Year in Songs of Praise today anyway to go back to the, the, the order of service and what was happening I want to rough, I'll just run through it fairly quickly and you can get a, a feel for it John Chrysostom as I say wrote this in AD 390 and it's still followed today there are three liturgies that were involved and are used in the church in the Orthodox Church. The liturgy of Basil the Great, which was written first. The liturgy of John Chrysostom that we're going to look at. The liturgy of the pre-sanctified gifts about 50 to 100 years later. So the liturgy of John Chrysostom then, um, there's three parts to it. There's the liturgy of preparation, that's the order of service for one part. Liturgy of the Catechumens. And after that part has taken place, the Catechumens leave. So, and then there's the Liturgy of the Faithful. So, what do those mean? Well, the Liturgy of the Preparation involves sort of the priest. That's the part that we see the priest coming in with the censer and the incense. And they will come in and they will uh, sing hymns. And they will chant uh, psalms, generally. And they will make prayers. That's the, 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 the first part, that Liturgy of Preparation. Then the second part is the, the liturgy, if you move it on a slide, thanks Paul, the liturgy of the Catechumens. And it's more of the same, there's more of this reading, of this singing of hymns and again of prayers. There's also though, it includes the reading of an epistle and the reading of a gospel. And a gospel message. And it could be longer or shorter depending on the service length. But basically this is for people, for both parts of that was for all those who could come into the church. And if you were a Christian, you stayed for all three parts. If you weren't a Christian, you left the church and you leave the church after the first two bits. If you're a catechumen, you haven't been yet baptised into the church, you left after the second bit. So you got God's word preached to you, spoken to you. And it's still that is the case that the way... Then the third part was the Liturgy of the Faithful and it was the longest part of the service. And you can imagine, if this is all going on, then um, there's a lot, that's a long service. And this included hymns, the sign of peace, the repetition of the Nicene Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Holy Communion, the Prayer of Thanksgiving, the reading of Psalm 33 and then a benediction. So a long time. You think you're here for an hour, an hour and a quarter, maybe an hour and a half? A lot longer, folks. A lot to work through. If we go back a slide, and my apologies for that, Paul. Back a slide, I want to read one of the prayers. And you can just see the richness of this. Shine within our hearts, loving Master, the pure light of your divine knowledge. And open the eyes of our minds that we may comprehend the message of your gospel. Can't you see that? You know, look, show us the truth. Show us what Jesus did for us in dying on the cross. Help us to understand it. Help us to take it in that we may comprehend the, the message of your gospel. Instill in us also reverence for your blessed commandments. 
So having conquered sinful desires, we may pursue a spiritual life, thinking and doing all those things that are pleasing to you. For you, Christ our God, are the light of our souls and bodies. And to you we give glory together with your Father, who is without beginning, and all our all-holy, good and life-giving Spirit, now and forever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Yes, really wonderful truths found in a prayer like that. And we can learn often from others and from other branches of Christianity that are, that are true to the faith. Uh, but particularly though, what comes out of this is there is still this desire to have God's word read and have God's word preached. If you remember I said last time, sadly, because a lot of the priests themselves were illiterate, God's word wasn't being preached. It was being read in in the Western church in Latin. It was being read in the Eastern church in ancient Greek. And people couldn't understand it. And sadly, even the priests themselves couldn't understand it. So the preaching of the word started to fall away. But wonderfully, those men that we were thinking about earlier this evening, they were faithful to preaching God's word They helped to get it translated into local languages. They were concerned that people needed to hear about Christ and needed to turn to him for salvation, just the same as we are today. And of course, missionary endeavour still continued. It still went on. And here we we find ourselves at a period of time when the Muslim world has basically conquered all of North Africa, most of three quarters of Spain, all of the Middle East and so on. And so they needed missionaries to go to them. And encouraged by St Francis of Assisi, uh, some of his followers went to Morocco to preach about Jesus to the Muslims. Sadly, all of them were killed that went to Morocco. Others went to other areas of North Africa and they suffered equally, persecuted by the Muslims. Francis himself went to Egypt and he was allowed into Egypt, but he wasn't allowed to preach openly. But he was allowed to go around and encourage the Christian communities that existed. And he wasn't allowed to go into Syria. That included Palestine, obviously, at the time. And then there was a man called Raymond Lull as well. And he was famous for uh, wanting to reach the Muslims too. He had a real passion to reach Muslims for God's word. So, of course, this part, the Balearic Islands had been conquered by the Mohammedans and he went to Mallorca and he started up work there to reach the, the Muslims and then moved to North Africa. They tried lots of time to stop him but he kept coming back and he kept coming back and he kept coming back because he wanted to tell people about Jesus and they eventually stoned him to death. Age data. Still missionary light right to the end. A missionary right to the end. Another big area that we don't think about because it doesn't often come into our, 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 our sort of psyche was the rise of the Mongol Empire. Basically, under Genghis Khan, the Mongols swept out of Mongolia right across Asia, right across Russia, right into Europe, right across uh, into parts of Germany, down into Turkey and all that area, and then eventually down into China. And so there was a great number of people there who needed reached for Christ as well. And a Franciscan went to Mongolia uh, in 1246. He wanted to, to bring God's word 
to uh, these Mongols. And so, and it was later the 100 missionaries, Kublai Khan actually asked for 100 missionaries to come because he wanted to let the Christian faith be developed as well. He was quite happy. Somebody in his kingdom could be Muhammad and it could be Islam, I should say. They could follow Muhammad or they could follow Christianity or follow Buddhist. He didn't mind. And he was quite happy for the Christian faith to grow. Sadly, no one took up the offer. Some missionaries did eventually go, but the hundred that they went for, uh, one commentator said, if that hundred had got into China hundreds of years ago, what a difference it might have made. Then, unfortunately, about a hundred years later, the Khans uh, turned to Buddhism and Christianity was persecuted. And it was over 300 years before um, missionaries would once again visit China. So there's a little bit of what's been happening in a 200 year period. Quite a, a range of things. And you can appreciate that I am very quickly going over a very brief outline and sketch of all that's happened. You know, when we consider the spirit and the faithfulness of those Christians in the Middle Ages, it reminds me uh, very much of the words of Hebrew 11, speaking to the, about the Old Testament saints. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Such was the lot of many of those who followed faithfully God's word in that dark age period. And we were need to remember and give thanks for those faithful people who kept the truth of God's word alive. Really, you know, it's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like. We don't know anything about the persecution. Yes, I'm afraid we're still classed as heretics from the church that claims to be the one only true church. But we are faithful to God's word. And like these men of old and women, because they, that group in Oxford included many women, we need to remain faithful. We need to be involved in mission to go and tell others about Jesus. We need to stand firm in God's word and to fight error where it exists in Christendom. I trust that will give us a little bit more insight. I, I have probably will do two more. I'll look at the Reformation the next couple of 100, 250 years and look at the Reformation itself. The Waldenses, a lot of them, for example, when the Reformation really took hold and they learned about it in those high alpine valleys, many of them joined a lot of the new churches, the new Protestant churches, and some of them still exist today. So there we are. I want to uh, close by reading the last couple of verses from Psalm 33. I don't need to put it up. We wait for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our hearts rejoice in him because we trust in his holy name. May your faithful love rest in us, O Lord, for we put our hope in you. That's the hope that they had. Let's stand together to sing. Another one of those hymns written from 800 years ago by Bernard of Clairvaux. Jesus, the very thought of you, the sweetness fills my breast.